This is everything you want to know about non-clinical careers for physicians. For Third Evolution, I'm your host, Robert Pretty. So you've decided you want to be a consultant. You know, I was just having a hallway consult with a physician, and I asked him what he thought he might be interested in doing outside of medical practice. And his pretty quick response was, well, I'm thinking about consulting. Well, that's a big field, I replied. What type of consulting? His response was simply this. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, you know. I waited for something to follow, but nothing. I asked again, specifically, what do you want to consult about? What issues do you want to work with? What uh, problems do you want to solve? His response was simply, well, whatever an orthopedic surgeon would do. Being a consultant has somehow become the catch-all for, well, you know, I'm smart and people respect my advice, so, you know, I must be a consultant. Well, not quite. Actually, not even close. I realize sometimes it seems that way. You've probably hired or at least worked with consultants sometime in your career, and you likely thought they simply listened to your best ideas or thoughts and then repackaged them onto their letterhead. I used to work with a gentleman who described consultants this way. A consultant is someone who asks you for your watch in order to tell you what time it is. Well, so your thinking wouldn't be considered that far off. Regardless, good consultants can make what they do look easy. And I've always said that a good consultant is always a very good listener. But being a good listener and sometimes doing nothing more than perhaps reshaping and tweaking your thoughts and ideas and impressions, well, that does not make them devoid of valuable information. In fact, just like you, their professional perspectives are a combination of learned and experienced information. What I said to that surgeon was this. If you really want to be a consultant, first, evaluate everything you've done in your life and career and decide what problems or types of problems you'd like to be paid to solve. Second, ask yourself if those problems need to be solved. Third, do those problems want to be solved? And that may sound redundant, but it's not. And fourth, ask yourself if anyone will pay for those problems to be solved. And if they will, how much? As you consider those four really critical decision points, realize individuals, organizations, and society, they need many things. However, we are not always willing to address our needs or pay for them. Our wants, on the other hand, often represent much more market-viable goods, services, and products. What I'm saying is that identifying a strong need is usually not enough to validate a business venture, whereas identifying a strong want well, that just may be. This dichotomy is clearly illustrated by a challenge I was dealing with some years ago. In my hospital, I knew we needed to have dedicated plastic surgery services associated with our organization. While we had plastics on staff, and they did considerable elective volume in our ORs, their emergency coverage was unreliable, and they had little interest in reconstructive work. With everyone's blessing, I set about to recruit a couple of plastic surgeons with a focus on emergency and reconstructive care. Once word got out about my mission, the existing plastic staff stormed the CEO's office and demanded we cease our efforts. Various threats were made about their hospital use, my future employment, and their intentions to sow further discord through the medical community. The effort was canned. The unfortunate fact was that I'd already signed a contract with a physician, which under great duress, I was forced to terminate. 
About two months after most of the dust had settled, my phone rang one Monday morning. My CEO wanted to meet immediately. He explained that over the weekend, our board chair had brought his granddaughter to the ER with a nasty dog bite on her face. Well, he naturally requested a plastic surgeon to repair the damage. And the very surgeon who'd caused me such grief was notified of the request. Pack her wound and I'll see her during rounds on Monday, was the surgeon's response. The board chair's and my CEO's response was, can you still hire a couple of plastic surgeons? Need was not the driver, but want one out. So if you have to make a choice between wanted services and needed ones, look very critically about how each will be perceived and how they are perceived related back to the economics. Form follows finance, as an old friend of mine used to constantly say, what will people pay for? To further illustrate, I've had several physicians over the years approach me with the business idea of providing physician-guided healthcare advice, that is, advocacy and support for patients interacting with the healthcare industry. Those physicians have explained to me at length about how many bad decisions patients make because of their range of alternatives are forced to fit with a physician's or an institution's standards of practice, but may not be in the patient's best interest, or how family members are thrown into unwanted decision-making roles when a loved one loses the ability to make decisions for themselves. Well, those physicians are absolutely correct. Telling me this is truly preaching to the choir. That level of professional guidance is much needed. It would or could improve patient outcomes, and it would certainly improve most people's opinions of the healthcare industry. But the idea suffers from several obstacles. From the spontaneity of most of those decisions to the interplay of the high cost of decisions coupled with the immediacy required to make those decisions, well, too many external forces make expert intervention simply impractical outside a very discreetly driven concierge environment. And those are very few and very far between. And interestingly, the want aspect is usually not recognized until after the decision-making event has passed. Just ask yourself how many times you've heard a patient or a caregiver say, gee, I just wish I would have known that then. So yes, such a service would serve an obvious need, but the want is a bit more elusive. The want, unfortunately, too often isn't realized until after the event or the opportunity has passed. And healthcare interventions, being what they are, often crisis interventions, they don't lend themselves to much advanced planning. Who, after all, looks forward to paying their healthcare insurance premiums? adding yet another charge for something you don't know when you'll use and you don't even want to use it. Well, you see what I'm getting at. That's a push. The point then is to define whether or not you have an actual marketable service or perspective. So talk with people. Ask them what they think. And if every conversation ends by someone saying, well, I can certainly see where that would be needed or would be a benefit, then ask some more. Focus on the want factor. Say this to someone, if I offered this to you today, would you want it? If you're met with a long pause or a non-committal maybe, or you have the default fallback to, yes, I can certainly see how that would be needed, then you likely have some major hurdles to scale. But if, if the response is, yes, I've been trying to figure out how to do this, but I haven't been able to find someone to help me, then you're on much stronger footing. If that's the response, 
then you may have passed the want test. The next question, will they pay and how much? I approach the issue of payment in this way. What does it cost to correct the problem compared to the actual cost of the problem? Well, consider that same example. Being a physician guide or advocate through healthcare and medical processes, what would you charge someone to be their guide? What's your time worth to you? Is it $100 an hour, $200, $500? What's the right number? Now, what is it costing that person to not have your help? Interesting question. It's causing them some anxiety. It may or may not, however, cost them anything additional or different in co-pays or deductibles. The point is this. You have to be able to define specific value for your services. And consider this little fact. Most people, most organizations respond much more strongly to monies saved than monies made. Now, is that clear? People, companies, organizations usually have a much greater focus on being able to reduce costs than increase revenues. Trying to present a value proposition for the opportunities lost is truly an uphill battle. Further, think of it in everyday medical practice terms. Patients will pay more for you to intervene into a problem that stops their pain, you might say, than they will for prevention services. Frankly, that's literally the cornerstone of medicine, the value of intervention versus the value of prevention. So is there any real surprise that the rest of the world has the same value system? The point is this then, to be hired by someone else as a consultant, you need to be able to present your value in very clear terms, and those terms must be considered and presented in terms of needs and wants. However, you may say, no, Bob, you don't get it. I don't want to start my own business. I plan to be a consultant for someone else. Well, let's talk about that reality. Any consulting group is going to ask you a few specific questions. Question one is this, and here we go again. What's your specialization? What is your special knowledge? The specific problems people want solved that you can solve. What is your special sauce? Telling them your background and your medical experience and expecting them to have some aha moment saying, oh, we know exactly what you can do. Well, it's not going to happen. So go back to my four basic questions. What are your skills and knowledge? What problems can you solve and problems that want to be solved? And what's the value of the solving? I also suggest getting familiar with spreadsheets if you aren't already. Being able to actually present your impact on a hypothetical income statement called a pro forma paints an even clearer picture not only of your value proposition, but also of your ability to communicate it in a clear and concise business fashion. So to be considered as a consultant by someone else, you need to either offer a real special sauce or be able to bring an existing group of clients, a book of business as it's called, with you. To that second question, you may be asked what base of clients can you or will you bring with you? Some years ago, there was a considerable appetite, for example, in the financial services community to bring on physicians as their first-tier financial advisors. You know what I mean, those people who work directly with the clients and help explain and direct their portfolios. They don't necessarily manage investments, but mostly serve in the middle to communicate client objectives or requirements to the brokers who actually do the investing and create the client portfolios.
This trend was based on the perspective that physicians know other physicians, and they would be trusted by those other physicians, and therefore should easily be able to bring a boatload of physicians into the business. They were wrong, and that trend has now disappeared. So again, if you want to be hired by a company into some consulting capacity, ask yourself those two questions, and you should have a very clear answer as to whether someone is likely to hire you to be a consultant or not. The greater likelihood is this. If you want to be a consultant, you'll find more opportunities to finding your own business activity than hoping to be hired by someone else. If that becomes your path, let's talk a little bit about your business organization and structure for this new business consulting activity. After all, you're not going to hang out your digital shingle and sit in the office waiting for your phone to ring. You need to have focus and you need to have a process. A concept presented to me many years ago by a consultant friend was his formula for the use of consulting time. My friend defined the ideal consultant's day in this way. It should be divided into three components. It should be 50% providing billable services, 30% selling and marketing your product or services, and 20% managing the business of your business. So that's your target objective. And if the measure of a successful consultant is billing for only 50% of his or her time, now you understand the basis for what you likely consider the high hourly rates of consultants. When I say to potential clients that my hourly billing rate is $400, many quickly respond that they're physicians and they don't make that much. Actually, what I'd like to respond, but I don't, is to say yes, and I'd like to be paid for more than half my work, too, but again, I don't. And appreciate achieving 50% of billable time as a goal and represents a high-performing consultant. Ranging between 30 and 50% is a much greater likelihood. But that's for a high-performing consulting practice. And practically speaking, whatever amount of time less then 50% you are billing should then be reallocated and redirected into your selling time slot. So if you're starting a consulting business, well, day one, you have some time required to start and run your business. You probably have zero clients and that equals zero billable hours. Therefore, you should be spending 80 to 90% of your time selling and marketing. Are you ready for that? Furthermore, are you ready for the rejection? Do you appreciate that a closing rate of 10% is generally considered exceptional? Think about that. You need to make presentations to 10 clients before you get one, before you make a sale. I find it interesting when I speak with some physicians who will tell me about their own great consulting idea, but they talk with a friend who might possibly be representative of the intended client base, and that friend wasn't interested. Or that friend said, well, I already have someone doing that. The physician's conclusion, well, this must not be viable. Well, that's not selling, and that's not market testing. That's just idle chatter. Equate it to the nurse stopping you in the hall and asking about a newly experienced pain. Do you advise anyone to make a major medical decision on a hallway consult? Probably not. So why would you do the same? Starting your consulting business will be the second most intense period in your business journey. Trust me, the most intense will be when you have one hour to revamp a major client presentation and your computer crashes. Now tell me, that is truly intense, and really, I've been there. But starting your own business is its own process. It is a process predicated, however, on those four major questions. What is your special sauce? 
is your special sauce needed? Is your special sauce wanted? And what is the value of your special sauce? Once defined, you'll want to test. Look for venues, blogs, online groups, virtual meetings, perhaps some face-to-face -face meetings will even emerge, but look for opportunities to vet your special sauce. Don't try to sell during this process. Just look for validation. Ask and answer questions. And if you really do answer some need or want, you may find you're selling without even trying. But also, be structuring your time. If you have no billable hours and you have very little business activity to manage, then structure your 80 or 90% of your time between marketing and sales. Marketing will be, in part, your brand development, who you are, how you are defined, how do or will you communicate with your target client community. What can you do now, and I mean literally today, and what will you evolve to? Look to writing, research, presentations as a means to communicate your expertise and to position yourself as a consulting asset. Use your innate and your learned diagnostic capabilities to elicit information from others and to render diagnoses. And during this process, remember your target balance of time, billable hours, sales and marketing, and business management. Every piece of advice you provide that is not billed is marketing. So giving advice fits within your model and has value, but keep focusing on your ideal balance. So there you have it. If you're thinking about consulting, think about what is your special sauce? Is your special sauce needed? Is your special sauce wanted? And what is its value? Once you can answer those questions, you're ready to throw your hat in the ring and join the rank of consultants. Once again, for Third Evolution, Non-Clinical Careers for Physicians, this is Robert Pretty. For comments about this or any of my podcasts, don't hesitate to contact me at 720-339-3585. And that's for voice, message, or text. And don't forget to visit me online at thirdevo.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.